welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome Isham Nation to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 23. Thanks for joining me today. Today on the podcast, we're celebrating the upcoming National Surgical Technology Week, which is September 20th through the 26th. Now, just like surgery would be difficult without instrumentation that sterile processing folks provide, surgery would also be difficult without our surgical technology colleagues who are in the OR suite every day making it happen. So for all those surgical techs out there working in the OR or in sterile processing, a special thanks from the Isham Nation. Today on the show, we have the segment, What's On My Mind, followed by Mailbox Mania. And then we have a special guest for you on this special edition, celebrating surgical techs on this process podcast. Let's not waste any more time, and let's get into What's On My Mind. So if you're a faithful Isham Nation podcaster, then you may have noticed that there are three episodes that are dedicated to water quality. Episode number seven with Dwalt Deacon, episode 13 with Jonathan Wilder, and more recently, episode 18 with Brian Flanagan. All experts when it comes to water and sterile processing. Now I'm talking about this because water in SPD is a big deal. And if you don't already have some sort of water quality program in sterile processing that really involves your facility maintenance folks, then here's your wake up call, right? It's time to start one today. I can remember a time when endoscopes were not really a big deal, but you know, guess what? Look at us now, right? Endoscopes are a big deal. It's always a hot topic. So water quality, you know, it's also a big deal. Don't get caught off guard. Now, I'm I'm talking about this because a colleague of mine sent me an article which can be found in the Becker's Hospital Review, and it's titled, Washington Hospital Suspends Surgery Due to Sterilization Issues. Now, I'm not going to call the facility out. You know, if you really want to know who it is, you can go and read the article yourself. But the hospital has postponed most of their surgeries due to a water chemistry issue that's affecting sterilization. Now the organization basically is postponing all their surgeries except for those patients who are requiring immediate emergency surgery and for those uh, who can't be transferred to another facility because it would pose a risk to the patient. So the organization Uh, started suspending surgeries on September 2nd uh, to address this water chemistry imbalance. And as of September 4th, uh, those surgeries were still being postponed. The hospital doesn't have a firm date on when it will resume surgeries. However, the hospital said it's working around the clock to further analyze uh, those repairs. Now, a quote from the facility, Our high standards for sterilization are designed to prevent infection, and help ensure the safest care. 
We are giving our full attention to resolving this problem as quickly as possible and return our operating rooms to full capacity. Simultaneously, we are evaluating a variety of backup plans and long-term strategies to help minimize future disruptions. And that comes from the chief nursing officer at that facility. So, wow, right? A water quality issue is shutting down a facility's ability to perform procedures. So again, we've, we've had these discussions in the past on uh, past episodes. Um, again, I suggest you go check those out. Great information. Again, don't get caught off guard. You heard it here. So don't say you didn't know about these types of issues that are out there. Kudos to this healthcare facility for identifying the issue and taking steps to mitigate patient infections. Because I'm sure that shutting down the OR was a really difficult decision. So again, uh, if you don't have some sort of water quality program at your facility, you really need to start one. Don't let this be your facility. With that, that's going to do it for what's on my mind. In celebration of Surgical Technology Week, today in Mailbox Mania, we're looking at the publication The Surgical Technologist, the official journal of the Association of Surgical Technologists. Our first article is the January 2020, Volume 52, Number 1 Issue. Now this article is titled, Supine anterior total hip replacement. So superior anterior total hip replacement. This method has become increasingly popular over the last 15 years due to the push of tissue sparing, minimally evasive procedures, and medical innovations that make this option easier and faster. Evidence suggests that the anterior supine approach has less of a dislocation rate early on and as long as six weeks post-op as compared to the posterior approach. After the six-week mark, the anterior and posterior approaches have similar recovery and dislocation rates. The selection process for this procedure is more rigorous than the posterior approach. The ideal patient for a supine anterior total hip replacement has a BMI of less than 30, is active, flexible, and non-muscular, and a good femoral offset. There are many products on the market that make the anterior approach to total hip replacement a faster and easier procedure. So the instruments that you would use, uh, basic instrumentation, we're looking at a 10 blade loaded on a knife handle, number three, 15 blade loaded on a number three knife handle, Ferris Smith's, Addison forceps with teeth, Cobb elevator, large ronger, heavy mallet, tonsil snit forceps, tau clamps, alice clamps, straight hemostats, two curved hemostats, straight mayo scissors, two short, two long needle drivers, a corkscrew with a T-handle, sagittal saw and retractor blades, Holman retractors of all sorts and sizes, one, two, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, hooks that, uh, are specifically designed for the fracture table that you're going to need and uh, deep gelpie retractors. 
So in this procedure, an incision is made with a 10 blade on a number 3 knife handle. Bleeding is controlled with cartery. The surgeon dissects through the layers and places a deep gelpy retractor in the wound for better visualization. A cob elevator is used to dissect the fat tissue from the fascia. A 15 blade on a number 3 handle is used to make an incision in the fascia. On the anterior edge of the fascial incision, Alice clamps are placed and the muscle layers are dissected from the fascia with a cob elevator. The two Alice clamps are then removed and placed on the posterior edge in the same direction of the dissection. The tensor uh, fascia lata, TFL, I may have butchered that, is mobilized laterally and the deep gelpy retractors are then positioned along with a number 7 Hohmann retractor to visualize the floor of the TFL fascia. Dissection continues through the floor of the TFL until the capsule is palpated and circumflexed arteries are controlled with cautery. So I could go on, but I think you kind of get the point here. It's really important for sterile processing folks to really know what an instrument does during a procedure and how you can help better gain understanding of how that instrument is used. So like I read uh, just a second ago, the cob elevator is used to dissect the muscle from the fascia. Now, as you as sterile processing folks inspect the cob, if there are any imperfections, such as a nick or a burr in that elevator, then here we have a chance or we have the potential of tearing muscle causing undue damage and it's possible uh, also causes increased bleeding. So if you know a surgical technologist out there who's willing to share a copy of the surgical technologist publication, you know, it's a great resource to review these procedures. See, see the order of these instruments, right? And see how they are, how they're used in each of these specific cases, right? It's just going to make you a better uh, sterile processing technician knowing how those instruments are used. So uh, just another good resource that you can have in your wheelhouse. Another good resource, also if you're looking at procedures and want to see uh, how instruments are used or really when they are used during the procedure, uh, another good resource is the Alexander's, which is the care of patient in surgery. Now this book is going to give you way more information than you're ever going to need about a surgical procedure because it's going to go into uh, preoperative care, postoperative care, uh, those type of things. But in that Alexander's, it's going to list out or it's going to explain kind of the surgery and then some instruments that are used in that surgery. Again, this is where we need to draw out how that instrument is being used so we can best care for it. Okay, let's move on. So our next article is going to be found in the May, we're going to go back a little bit, May 2018 volume 50, number 5 issue. Now this article is a systematic review and a meta-analysis of robotic versus thoroscopic lung resection. So the background uh, in this meta-analysis is the robotic video assisted surgery, so we're going to call that RVATS, has reported to be equally effective as video-assisted surgery, just regular VATS, in lung resection, which is uh, pulmonectomies, lobectomies, and segmentectomies. So operating time, mortality, 
drainage duration and length of hospitalization of patients undergoing either the RVATs, again, R being the robotic, or just the VATs, are compared in this meta-analysis. Now, the method used in this study, uh, this was a systematic research for articles meeting the inclusion criteria. It was performed by the PubMed database. Articles published from January 2011 to January 2016 were included. They used results reported mortality for operating time, drainage duration, and hospital length for performing this meta-analysis. Now, mean difference and the logarithmic odd ratio were used as a summary in the statistics. So what does that all mean? Well, let's get to the results. The results of this were 10 studies were eligible. They were included in this analysis, five studies for operating time, three studies for chest tube days, and four studies for length of hospitalization, and six for mortality. Uh, They were able to include 3,375 subjects for the RVAT and uh, 58,000, just over 58,000 for the regular VATS procedure. Now, patients were mainly treated for lung cancer, metastatic fossil, and benign lesions. They could not detect any differences between operating time. However, they did find two trends showing drainage duration and length of hospitalization were shorter following the RVATS than for the common VATS. Mortality was also lowered in patients undergoing RVATS. So the conclusion, they concluded that the RVATS, the robotic-assisted procedure, is a sustainable, minimally invasive procedure for lung resection and suitable alternative for the VATS procedure. The RVATS is as time efficient as the VATS and shows a trend to reduce hospital stay and drainage duration. The article also suggests that more and better studies are required to provide reliable unbiased evidence regarding the uh, relative benefit of both methods. So I read all that and why? Why am I saying this? Why am I highlighting this article uh, for you guys? Well, this article is important to you in sterile processing because, and to qualify this, I I don't really have any supporting data to back this up uh, except for experience in sterile processing, right? So from the experience of uh, processing instrumentation from a VATS procedure, it takes less time and manpower than to process robotic instrumentation. So studies like this and advancement in technology may change productivity levels in your department. So it's always a good idea to be aware of what's going on, not only in sterile processing, but also in perioperative services. So studies like these, being aware of studies like these, you can help you uh, prepare your department uh, for future changes. Right, so it's always a good idea. Anytime you see uh, something, you know, again, an advancement in a procedure, what that effect is going to be as it trickles downhill. You know, we all know that robotic instruments take just a little bit longer than your your other normal basic instrumentation. So, uh, looking at these articles, even though they may not on the surface seem like they apply to sterile processing, it's always a good idea to just to understand what 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 the study is saying and how that could ultimately affect you in sterile processing. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this segment of Mailbox Mania. Hi, this is Natalie Lind, Isham's Education Director. I know you're used to hearing John Wood's voice as we start a podcast, 
But today we're going to turn the tables, and I'd like to interview John. John has a lot of great points, but unfortunately, he ends up being the person that's asking the questions. So, John, I want to thank you for agreeing to be on the other side of the microphone today. And let, let's start with some basics. How did you get started in healthcare? Well, it's kind of a funny story. My first experience in healthcare was with the military. I was in the Navy. But just prior to joining the Navy, when I was kind of in that contemplating uh, that career choice, my brother was in the military and he was in the Navy. And so I, I, I asked him, I called him one day and I said, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do when going into the Navy? Would you choose the same job you were doing or, you, or would you do something differently? And he told me I would be a corpsman. And so my first response was, well, what's a corpsman? I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's like, they, they work in healthcare. Uh, and later to come to find out, uh, a corpsman is a basic paramedic or kind of equivalent to a medical assistant that you see in the hospital or in your clinics when you go to uh, your doctor. So I started in the Navy. And uh, again, I went to core school was first. And then after you graduate core school, if you do well, uh, you kind of get some other options that you can uh, choose from. And one of the options uh, was pharmacy technician or surgical technician. So again, I got back in this situation where I didn't know what a surgical technician did. And so I asked him questions and uh, one of my instructors said, well, they assist the surgeon during a surgical procedure in the OR. And I thought, wow, somebody's going to entrust me to help out with a surgical procedure. And so I thought, yeah, I, I'm in on that. I, I want to try that. I want that kind of experience. So I, I got into uh, uh, the ST surgical tech program. And then again, once you uh, finish that school, once I finished or completed the training, uh, again, I did pretty well. And so at that time in the military, in the ST program, I had an option of either uh, going on to another school to specialize in either um, urology or ophthalmology or ENT, uh, head and neck surgery. And I really wasn't into urology and eyes kind of freaked me out just a little bit. So I chose head and neck surgery. And so uh, that's really how I got into healthcare. What was unique about ENT in the military, in the Navy, was not only did we work in the operating room, but we also worked in the clinic. So we got to see the, the continuum of care for patients starting in the clinic when they came in to see us. And then if they needed surgery, we would go to the OR, and then we would go back to the clinic and help the surgeon out with post-op care of that patient. So it was really a unique experience specifically with uh, head and neck surgery. And then along with that, we also had, uh, because our instruments were specialized or a little bit different than your basic instruments, I got to go down to CS. And in CS, as an ENT surgical tech, we would put together our sets. So we would put those sets together, and then they would sterilize them. And so I had learned a little bit about sterile processing during school, but I'd never seen the machines, had no idea what was going on. All I knew is that we put our sets together, and then we'd go back and uh, go back to the clinic and work. So that's kind of how I got into healthcare uh, through the military. That is really interesting, and I, for one, I'm glad your brother steered you in that initial direction. Yeah, yeah, because it, uh, you know, you're, you're very good at what you do. Now, you said you were a search tech for several years. What made you decide to go into central services still processing? So, 
again, you know, I, I kind of got a touch of sterile processing in the military when we'd go down and put our sets together. Well, I realized uh, after a little while that I was doing things that were wrong. Can you believe that? A surgical tech coming down <laughs> to sterile processing and screwing something up. No. Well, believe it or not, uh, we thought it would be a great idea. You know, we had all these picks and suctions and things that we'd use to put those in peel packs and then have a peel pack in our, in our set. So when we opened the set, they were all together. Well, as you know, that is that is that is not appropriate. That You cannot put a peel pack inside of the set. So we did some things that were wrong, right? And um, after the military, I, I went to a surgery center, and I started getting a little more curious about um, what happened in sterile processing. You know, and then um, not only did I work in that surgery center, but I worked as a contractor for some other facilities. And I noticed inconsistent practices among the facilities. And so I wanted to know why. And so I asked uh, my boss at the time, you know, do you mind if I get certified? Do you mind if I go to a conference and start learning more about sterile processing? And they were great. They said, yes, please uh, do what you need to do. And so I was really supported by my uh, leadership. But another reason was that as a surgical technologist, you know, I could really only advance so far in my career. Meaning you could, we, there was tech ones and tech twos, right? Or you could be a uh, first assist, or maybe you wanted to go into cardiology. And those had a little bit of different variation in, in kind of like a promotion type deal. Um, but there was no career ladder in sterile processing or in surgical technology. But sterile processing did have a career ladder. You know, you could start as a tech become a team leader, become a supervisor, become a manager, you know. And so I started looking at my career and, you know, I, I as a surgical tech, I, I think I, you know, I, I really learned uh, pretty much about as much as I was going to learn um, from the standpoint of, of the daily activities. And I wanted to learn a little bit more. I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to uh, get into sterile processing and learn how everything worked and then really advance my career through that path. So that's how I got started. It's how I got my feet wet in sterile processing. It's an interesting background, and I really think that it's unique that, you know, I know there are others that have done it, but to me at least it's very unique that you have been in both roles. You've been in the role of the provider of the instruments and also in the user of the instruments. And I bet you've seen some things and you look at things from a different perspective than most of us do. How has that experience as a surgical technologist helped you? Well, I think you're right. Um, as a surgical technologist, just knowing how the instruments are being used in the operating room uh, has really kind of helped me. And I, I give an example. I used to, When I worked at the facility, uh, when I first became a supervisor of sterile processing, um, a lot of the surgeons I'd worked with before, and so I knew them really well. Um, I knew how they did their cases. I knew what they liked and what they disliked. We had one surgeon who used uh, adenoid curettes and to, during her tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy procedures. And when she would remove the adenoids, she would use this curette. And if, the, if, if you've ever used it or if you've ever been in that situation, if they're not sharp, the curettes can cause ripping and tearing of the tissue, which then makes the surgeon uh, use a little more cautery uh, to remove that tissue. Uh, it can be bleeding issues. Right, but if those if those curettes are sharp, then it's a whole lot easier for that surgeon, right? They they perform the procedure, 
and then they you know go ahead and uh, stop the bleeding. So as a surgical technologist, I knew that. I knew when my instruments were dull and when there was going to be a problem. Um, so when I became when I got into the sterile processing, you know, again having that relationship with the surgeon, knowing what they liked, knowing how that instrument was used, you know, we collaborated and we made sure that you know there was a regular schedule set up for those instruments for that surgeon. And when those when those instruments started to become dull, they would let me know immediately. You know, there was good communication. Uh, during that, so just just understanding how instruments were uh, being used during the procedure, I think, is really uh, for me was an advantage. And then also, you know, there are times when surgeons get frustrated when things don't go right in the operating room. You know, and I've been at that bedside. I've been that person who's getting yelled at, uh, or you know, or taking on some of that frustration from the surgeon, or and and also the the operating room nurse. So I think you know just. Uh, having those relationships and understanding, you know, what happens in the operating room when, you know, not all the time when, when a, a scrub tech or a nurse is calling down and they're really upset, they're, they're upset because, you know, they're taking on some of that frustration from the surgeon. So it's not that they're upset with you. It's just things aren't going quite right. And so, you know, I kind of understand that. And so I, I, I guess there's some empathy there or, or I sympathize with with the operating room technicians. But again, I think just, you know, building those relationships and knowing those roles was, you know, really helpful when I made that transition into sterile processing. I think that's really important. And I envy you because I don't have that type of a background, but I could see where the communication would be better, where you'd understand more about what you needed to do. And I just want to take a moment to thank you (laughs) on my behalf and on the reader, our readers of Process Magazine, because some of you will have read some of the CIS lesson plans where John has taken procedures apart and he has explained how the instruments are used. And that's one of the thing I, things that I've really appreciated is you sharing that insight with us because it's something, unless you're a surgical technologist, you really don't have that. So let me ask you this. Do you think that surgical technologists make the best central service technicians? You know, I'm a little biased, but no, I don't. Um, anybody can excel in sterile processing. You know, I think one of the one of the advantages I did have was being in that role. But I've seen lots of programs uh, in, in facilities where they have those good relationships. So I think it's a lot about those relationships and just understanding what's going on and when. So anybody can go to the operating room. Uh, if you go to your... Uh, operating room director and say, hey, we want to learn more about what's going on uh, in the operating room, how instruments are being used, um, I'm sure they would gladly welcome you. You know, Just gaining that experience and be willing to step out and go see what's going on. See how, you know, when frustrations happen, you're right there in the room and you can understand just a little bit more. But no, I, I don't think that there's really, uh, for me, there was a little advantage just from a personal standpoint, but anyone can be in sterile processing you know, a lot of sterile processing folks say, I have a passion for this. It just takes somebody who has a passion for it. Uh, it takes somebody who wants to learn and just doesn't want to stay down, siloed in the sterile processing area. I think it's nice that you mentioned the word silo because when you were talking about going up to visit the OR, I think for too many years, we have been siloed. The OR has been separate from sterile processing. And all that does is it builds the walls that really impede communication and impede learning about each other's jobs. And I would also add that I think any surgical technologist that wanted to come down 
to still processing and learn more about the machines and the processes would be welcomed as well. Absolutely. And I think we really need to move in a direction where we work together, not just when there's a problem and everyone's upset, but in our day-to-day work relationships. Mm-hmm. So thanks for bringing that up. Do you have any advice for surgical technologists that are looking for careers in sterile processing? So I would say that there's a lot that goes down in, in sterile processing that most surgical technologists don't know unless they've been down in there, unless they've spent some time in that area. You know, it's it's not just uh, putting instruments together or washing instruments. You know, there's lots of details like reading IFUs. Right. Lots of standards, lots of guidelines that sterile processing folks have to know and have to follow. So it's it's not just coming down and putting a couple sets together. You know, there's lots of things you need to know, especially from Joint Commission and CMS. Um, It's really involved and things and processes that happen in CS happen for a reason. Right. And so uh, just don't go down there thinking that, you know, it all because. Guess what? We're always learning. Our industry is always changing. We're always adapting to new things and new technology. So I don't know it all. I still don't know it all. I'll never know it all. So just go on there with an open mind and just realize, you know, get into some of these different standards and organizations and things. Um, You know, just understand what's going on in the processes and sterile processing. And then I would say probably the, the key for me in my career is communication. You know, if you don't have good communication between the operating room with the technicians, the nurses in the room and sterile processing, you know, you, you really, that's when you come into a lot of conflicts, right? So good communication solves about half of your problems, right? If, if you're all on one page, if you're all working toward the same goal of patient safety, then I, you know, I, I think you're going to be, your career, it's going to start off a little better, <laughs> If you will, uh, you're going to be a lot happier. But establishing those great lines of communication is really key um, if you're looking to going into sterile processing. I couldn't agree more. I think of the the old saying that we think of the SPD and the OR team as two separate teams. When really we all are on the patient's team and we're all there for the patient, and that's a that's, right. that's a needs to be a daily reminder for all of us. Well, John, thank you so much for letting us turn the microphones, turn the table. Absolutely. I really appreciated you spending some time today, and I hope you'll allow me to ask you some more questions at another date. Absolutely. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, John. Thank you, Natalie, for assisting me in the role reversal today. And thanks again to all the surgical techs out there. Again, whether you're in the operating room or you're in sterile processing, have a happy Surgical Tech Week. Isham Nation episode 23 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the episode. Don't forget your CE. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code Surgical Technologist. The code for this episode is Surgical Technologist. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.